Hello, and welcome to Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm so excited, as always, to get to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our conversation about 2009, Friday the 13th. We have arrived, Tony, at the end of our Friday the 13th journey, at least until the next film that they make, which I assume will happen at some point, or show. Or we get access to that TV show. So. Yes, yes. Uh, indeed, but after like two years, year and a half, it's been a really long time. We've really been, we've really been milking this one, but I guess there are also just a, quite a, there are a lot of these films too. Yes. So there's, really there was are. a lot to work through. What, this is the 12th entry in the Friday the 13th franchise since it began back in 1980. So it's been a, a decade, several decades long run, 12 films. That's no small feat for a franchise. And uh, it took us about, a, about a, almost two years to get through. I'm a little surprised with the most recent last one being 2009. I'm a little surprised that we haven't had another one considering it would be the 13th. Like you would think that someone would have jumped on that. A little sooner by now but i'm sure that, it's coming that's a great point i i mean i guess you'd have to also tie you would have to tie it into this current franchise for it to count wouldn't it you couldn't do like a reboot or a remake i don't know i can never quite tell i mean you know certainly i think the halloween franchise which i don't know if i'll ever get you to watch with me all the way through <laughs> is the most infamous and saying you know like we're just purposely not going to count the the middle like half a right. dozen films so i think like what's weird and I guess freeing about the Friday the 13th franchise is that somehow they're always acknowledging the previous films, but also completely ignoring them in every way possible, which is a, a unique thing for an entire franchise to sustain. Because Nightmare would at least like occasionally make you aware that it was like a building on a legacy. But like this was just like, you remember the things. We're going to ask you to remember them, but forget them too, because who cares? I don't know. It's such a weird phenomenon. Yeah. Like speaking of Nightmare, ironically, Friday the 13th franchise feels like it operates more under like dream logic in which where yes. it's like the vague idea is that characters are always pretty much the same, but like things are maybe slightly different because you've slept since the last time you've had this dream. Yeah, it is a very deja vu feel. That's a, that's actually an excellent sort of way of, of thinking about it. And that, um, I mean, and that deja vu feel is like perfect for how this 2009 film kind of like comes to be and presents itself because it's kind of an amalgamation it's not a, it's not a true reboot it doesn't ignore yeah. any of the previous nope. films i mean we start with the cold open that quite literally places us back at camp crystal lake at, with the beheading of mrs Voorhees. so it's very respectful of that original of and those first four movies quite honestly but also it's extending and telling a like a, a new story i suppose yes so I guess speaking maybe of that, sets me up to talk yeah. about the story. <laughs> so, what if you were to give your lovely spoiler-free summary? Would you say about the 2009 Friday the 13th? Yeah. So we start in the 80s, where young Jason Voorhees witnesses his 
mom, Pamela, be brutally beheaded by a camp counselor, which uh, proceeds to traumatize this little tyke to go on a murderous <laughs> rampage. 30 years later, this group of friends uh, go on a camping trip to look for some marijuana that's growing in the woods. Four of the five are brutally killed uh, in extreme ridiculous fashion. But Whitney is kept alive by an adult Jason because she kind of looks like his mom, Pamela, which then gets us into the main action of the film, which follows Clay Miller as he searches for his missing sister, Whitney. Yeah. And that's Friday the 13th. Yeah. Excellent. So unsurprising, because this has been true for the vast majority of the films in the franchise, there's very little scholarship. Uh, on the 2009 film. In fact, if you Google Scholar Friday the 13th, 2009, what pops up is is some real world incident that happened on a Friday the 13th that like mm. involves lawsuits and stuff. And I didn't I didn't go down that particular rabbit hole, but like it didn't even like take me to the films. It took me somewhere else. But there is a little bit as we would expect to find in Wickham Clayton's book, See Here Cut Kill, Experiencing Friday the 13th, which really does remain the only full-length book of scholarship on like the, the franchise. The seminal text on the, scholar, yes, on the franchise, yes. it seems like. Which is, I guess, on the one hand, makes sense, um, having now seen all the films. On the other, considering just the cultural legacy, it's surprising to me that there's not more. But that's, and that's I wonder, the way it is. I wonder if Friday the 13th is perhaps buried within like the footnotes of like more traditional analyses of like the making of the horror genre. Because... Yeah. This franchise clearly is like so fundamental in the building and like formulaic, formalizing of the yes. horror genre and the what tropes are expected and what audiences or expectations are. And so I, I wonder if it might be found more in those sections rather than individual pieces of scholarship devoted to films or entries in the franchise. I think I think that's absolutely correct. And it's in part because to refer back to what you said, there's that deja vu-ness that like one often doesn't need to talk about Friday the 13th, number five, because whatever you're going to say about that film probably has already been said about the original, or maybe at least the first three or four. And so I think that's the other reason is that for, for so long, the franchise has sort of been conflated into being treated almost as a single entity, because it is just variations on a theme, much more so than almost any other franchise, where again, it's both very true to the narrative but also just going its own way at some point which you know more or less sums up the journey but what i like about clayton's discussion in here and and there there are a few pages devoted particularly to friday the 13th 2009 is he's really situating it as as makes total sense within conversations about what remakes are and and about theories of of nostalgia particularly in terms of form and content and so he talks about the fact that uh, he has. He says, Friday the 13th, 2009, initiates an aesthetic game. It swings between subtle speckles of early 1980s form and a fiercely up-to-date form. As an example, in the shot following the establishment of present-day Crystal Lake, we see a group of teenagers hiking through the woods. While the events of the previous sequence could have occurred in the early 1980s, a time period supported by the clothes the girls wearing in that sequence, this group of present-day teens in some cases wear similar clothes. The character of Richie, for example, is wearing a t-shirt with a similar fit to the girl from the introductory sequence and tighter-fitting blue jeans than his friends. 
Richie and Mike have longer hairstyles than most of the male characters in Freddy vs. Jason, or even some of the closer contemporaries of Friday the 13th. And so Clayton talks about the fact that there's so much of this film that tries to place itself as sort of place timeless, right? Where it could, you know, it could feel like it's happening in the 1980s, but we, or around the same time as the rest of the films, but, but then we distinctly see it's not because they have a GPS tracker or things like that. But there's so much of the film that feels as though it's not specifically or exclusively in 2009, even so far as, you know, like the cell phones don't work, right? Because that they're in a place that doesn't have good cell service. And so then we're just relying on the landlines, which we've been relying on since 1980. Uh, but he also talks about the fact that then there are these elements that really sort of capture what horror films in 2009 can do that might not be able to happen uh, in, in 1980. And, and the scene he particularly references is the, the wakeboarding scene and the fact that the camera work, but particularly the decision to have it be sort of around mid to late afternoon and the sunlight is very different than appears in a lot of the earlier Friday the 13th. Although there is, uh, he says, potentially an homage to the scene um, in the first one where uh, the one guy's pretending to drown right in the lake. So he says, you know, it's kind of bouncing back and forth between doing things that might only be possible in a 2009 horror film generically as well as uh, in terms of form, but also just very much, like you said, uh, what's the difference between like homage versus just like duplicating again? And so he kind of like situates it there, which I think is where this film has to be situated. Yeah, it's a really nice overview of kind of where this, because this film is incredibly deferential to the rest of the franchise, which yes. if you're going to be negative, as many critics were in their re in their <laughs> re in their reviews of the film, one might say it adds nothing to the franchise. And that's what many of them did say. But I think it's slightly different than that. There are unique things, like you were mentioning, the daylight horror that feel more contemporary than anything else. And they're definitely, I think they're just, rather than attempting to tell an original story each time, like what is so key to the Nightmare franchise, and I'll, I'll even give it this, the Halloween franchise, yes. too, in which they're clearly telling a story. I, I loved what you just, uh, what you, how you described the Friday the 13th franchise as variations on a theme, and this is a theme for a new generation. Yeah, because if we take the Halloween franchise as our example, you know, the most recent Halloween films have really said, we have to acknowledge the slasher film as being something completely different in the 2020s. What does that mean? What do we think about? Whereas the 2009 Friday the 13th is just saying, here is what this story would look like in the time capsule that is a 2009 film. And it really is in like every way possible. I mean, it has Jared Padalecki and, and several other people that are pretty well known from the early aughts. Um, ben Feldman, Brian Hansen, Jonathan Stowski are, are several of them. Danielle Panabaker. Those are all actors that were in a lot of stuff. Certainly Jared pa Padalecki is the most famous of them. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they defined and sort of were on the screen again and again and again in not just lots of things, but like Padalecki was in the, the remake of House of Wax in 2005 as well. So like, these are the people that you would expect to see in a 2009 film. And that's only the people in front of the screen. I was about to say, and then behind the camera, it's a, it's this amalgamation of Sean Cunningham, who is like the legacy guy. The OG, the Friday, yeah. The OG Friday the 13th, teaming with Michael Bay, Andrew Horn, huh. and Brad Fuller. Who, as I saw all those names pop up, I was just like reminded what a time the early 2000s were and how much <laughs> power Michael Bay had over 
the horror industry. I think now he's become over so like everything. <laughs> over everything, I'll give him that. I feel now he's become associated mostly with like uh, big cartoony actiony movies. Yeah, there was like a time when he was franchise. Absolutely, but there was a time when he was seriously invested in the horror genre. I mean, this is the production team that re uh, did the mounted the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2003 which i have not seen that and you said that was your first exposure to that yeah i actually saw that film before the the 1970s one because i in fact most of my forays into horror happened later in life and they happened with adaptations so it was the house of wax remake the texas chainsaw remake and then like amnestyville horror right with ryan reynolds like those were my first and then i realized Oh, actually, I'm I'm look, coming in like way late in the conversation, and then kind of jumped backwards. But yeah, I I don't remember it super well, but it has a very similar feel to it as you would expect to this Friday the Thirteenth film. Yeah, and it's by the same writers, uh, Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, who wrote Freddy versus Jason. Oh. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So they kind of have that contemporary tie to the franchise from that one. And I wanted to ask you a question because we were talking briefly yeah. before the, before we hopped on to record the pod about how you revisited uh, Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah, so those of you who listen, thank you for listening, um, know that, that this is my first time making it through most of, like all of, the Friday the 13th franchise. And the only films I had seen really in the franchise were Freddy vs. Jason, Jason X, and this 2009 one, which I realize is, again, a backwards way to approach it. But I wanted to rewatch Freddy vs. Jason, having now seen the all the Jason films, because I don't know, I've been struggling to figure out if it's the text that does it, or if it's my own sort of biases that makes me feel like in the power dynamic, Freddy, Freddy has the leg up on Jason. And so I wanted to know now having, you know, spent a long time with Jason, how I felt. And I... I don't have a good answer. Like I'm, I'm very confused and, and a little stuck and traumatized. So I, I do want to give a shout out um, and the other series of scholarship that we've been referencing this whole time, which is the horror homerooms special issue on uh, Jason at 40. There's an article by Stella Castelli called Freddie and Jason, their new full length feature. And her argument is, is that we have to read this film through a vaudevillian aesthetic. And if we do that, then the film makes a lot more sense as they are like a vaudeville pair that only becomes into their own and their show only is good once they are together, right? That's when the biggest kills happens. That's when the most action happens, which is really interesting because then it kind of becomes like a good example is like the uh, magicians, Penn and Teller, since one of them is silent, you know, like that, like they only mm -hmm. work together effectively, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know how to feel. I can't figure out who the filmmakers wanted, if either, to be seen as the top dog. Obviously, Freddy has all the one-liners, mm -hmm. but at the end, Jason does behead Freddy and pull him down into his hell, but Freddy does give us that little wink, so he's still around. And the Freddy in, in and I'm always reminded of this, the Freddy in Freddy versus Jason is a little grosser, um, and, he's a, and much more, like, it's much more incesty the the jokes that he's making. I mean, he has, he has a rapey, like an explicitly rapey comment. He he has a racist comment in there. So he has these like lines that don't appear in most of Wes Craven's version, even though Wes Craven's version is still naughty, right? He's just not the same. 
So I don't know. I just, I'm just not sure how I feel about it other than I'm always reminded that the main actress who's supposed to be the virginal final girl is like one of the villains in, in Dawson's Creek. So it's hard for me to see her in that role. And, and so I just like the whole movie, I'm just confused start to finish. And so placing it within like the larger Friday the 13th viewing, did it make any more sense the lore wise at all with Jason that is included yeah. in there? Or his character? Because I remember, I remember from our conversation, one of our chief complaints that and criticisms because had a fairly positive viewing of the of that film when we worked yeah. through it for the nightmare but was that we couldn't fundamentally understand any of jason's actions or how yes. or kind of how his plot developed I, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that quickly before we turn our attention back to the 2009 version yeah so one of the things that i didn't know until making it through the franchise was how jason has evolved from you know, sort of a like backwards kid in the woods who happened to have survived the the murder of his mom and a drowning and maybe a little supernatural, but may also just be like slightly feral to like a hundred percent supernatural, invincible, not of this world. And so that part made a lot more sense. And in fact, I wish that Freddie versus Jason had leaned into that more. So there's a moment where Freddie is pretending to beat Mrs. Voorhees and sort of says something like, You're, you know, invulnerable, Jason. Remember that. But I wish that they'd kind of leaned even more heavily into the fact that it's not just Freddy who's supernatural. It really is Jason, too. And I think they could have done some fun things with that um, that they missed. But I guess Jason felt, I understood in this rewatching that Jason actually in this film was at his most fully fleshed out. Because at his most fully fleshed out, he's still very flat. So, th so that was nice. Because I had always assumed they just kind of like half-baked jason's character but they actually like gave him as much as they could it's just there's just not that much there's just not that jason's much more. not a no i mean you have the yeah you have the his mom you have the camp and you have the yeah. killing of the kids and but honestly like the franchise aside from uh oh i oh god i just forgot his name so i guess he's not even that uh not that important to the franchise uh tommy jarvis oh yeah yeah, yeah. uh aside from him that character kind of there's not really that many characters no. that really even cross over between the films I get the hockey mask doesn't even show up until yeah. later down the line uh, <laughs> yeah in part three so yeah yeah really all the references are exactly what you say and it has to do with his mom and it has to do with his childhood trauma and then camp crystal lake and that's that's really it and even though so much of freddie's backstory is also you know about in prior times when he was vigilante hunted down, it still feels more relevant to his his story than Jason's. Um, so I guess in that way, the film made more sense to me from the perspective of Jason. I'm just still not sure if they're Jason fans. I don't know if Jason wins, but I'm not entirely sure I can see this as people being fans of Freddy either. So it's yeah. just like they're, again, I, so that's why I like Costelli's argument that like the way to understand this text is not with the verses, but as this like vaudevillian duo, which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, maybe I'll re have to revisit it right now, having seen it. It makes me makes me curious to check it out again. Yeah, yeah, and it's still like it's still one of my favorites, just because it's fun, right? In that sort of mindless, really odd sort of way. And the most successful of the Friday the Thirteenth film. Oh, really? Financially, yep. you mean, or critically, or both? Okay. Uh, financially, I. None of this franchise was really critically fared very well critically. 
But the, yeah, the Freddy versus Jason was the most successful performing of the franchise, followed by this 2009 remake financially. Yes. So thoughts on on the 2009 film? Like what what caught your attention as you were watching this? Like what were you thinking about? I was thinking a lot about how it does honest it did honestly subvert my expectations a little bit because I I guess I had gotten into this habit of there's a there there were a lot of remakes in this early 2000s yeah, period and we I'm not a fan of most of them we talked about the Nightmare on Elm Street remake being very much in opposition to the original source material yes. rather than adapting the spirit of it so I think I was I was a kind of a, going into this movie with that frame of mind that, oh, how are they going to differentiate themselves from it? So I think I was honestly, I, I was switched between being pleasantly surprised and mildly bored, depending on the scene. But it was a whole lot more, it, paid, it was playing a lot more homage to those first four films. It was very respectful of the franchise. And I, there were some, it gets some good kills along the way. Yes. But it isn't exactly, I, I, I mean, it subverted my expectations in that, it was so similar to the other ones in a way I was not expecting it to be. Yes. Did that make sense? <laughs> that that makes total sense because I, I think what's interesting, I would be curious to know people's thoughts about this film who didn't have any thoughts or feelings about any of the other Friday the 13th. Because I think you're right that like it's not a very original film if you've seen the franchise. I don't know if it's a very original film if you haven't seen the franchise because I don't even even when that was one of the only films I'd seen, I still was aware that it was a pretty formulaic film. Tropey, for sure. Yeah, but you know, I mean, the acting is pretty good. Uh, certainly better than some of the other ones we've seen. The plot was pretty tight, even though we had some moments that, you know, I could have lived without. Um, it's still compared again to some of the other films in the franchise uh we you know we got to the action pretty quick i still mm -hmm. think about like jason takes manhattan where we don't get to manhattan until the last 30 minutes yeah. where jason goes to hell where we don't get to hell until the last four minutes so you know in that in those respects this film took us to camp crystal lake within the first five minutes yep got us our first kills built us a backstory you know i think did all of those things really nicely and i had originally thought and then i forgot one of the characters, but I had originally thought this film had managed to do the avoid the one thing that the Friday the 13th franchise has done consistently, which is the super weird characters who don't have these big roles. They're usually cannon fodder at some point, but are also some of just the weirdest folks in And in this cinematic. movie has, like, the one. There's the one. Yeah. Donnie. Yes. Yes. So Donnie is our, like, he's in a barn. I don't even know what he's doing in the barn. Uh, he's the one that finds all the weed after um, the initial group has been murdered. So Jared Padalecki's character, Clay. So Clay goes in and is like, hey, have you have you seen my sister? And he's like, no, but she sure is fine. And then like he has this weird, Donnie has this weird like moment where we realize that he's definitely sexing up his mannequin. And he's like super, super creepy. And it's actually that killing that leads this version of Jason to find the, the hockey mask. The hockey mask. Which is like, why is there a hockey mask in this random barn? But other than him, we we don't really have too many other weird characters. Now, we do have the two characters are played by Aaron Yu and uh, Arlen S. Carpetta, who are also our non-sort of normative characters, right? They're not hooking up with the girls. They're BIPOC and they're stoned the whole time. And they also play, the com they play for comedic effect, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think is 
problematic that our only BIPOC characters are also very explicitly made into our others. But they even make allusions to that, right? Where like the really obnoxious rich guy, Trent, is like, fill up my tank. And then, you know, uh, Lawrence's character is like, really, dude, you're going to ask the only black guy to do it? So, you know, it's like, it's like aware of itself, even as it's just perpetuating <laughs> a lot of those stereotypes. Absolutely true. And yeah, it's a, it's a lot more streamlined than the other, a lot of the mm -hmm. other films in the franchise, for sure. Like, we have a very quick cold open where we flash back and we get the the backstory with Pamela and the beheading. Yes. And then we have another, I guess, second cold open. It's like, yeah, it's like a warm opening, right? Cause like, like a warm she, opening. <laughs> because she comes back. Yeah. Uh, Whitney does, but it is still like cold-esque. Yeah. So it's somewhere in between there. It's somewhere in between because yeah. they do the title drop after that second. Which comes after. like 20 minutes in. It's yeah. really long in. I, which is, yeah, it was a, I, again, it's an interesting structural approach to take to the, mm -hmm. to the opening to get you all of the information that you really do need to, it's like watching, honestly, like watching the first Friday the 13th movie, uh, yes. before you watch this 2009 movie where you're, it, it'd be like if, if the first Friday the 13th movie ended with Whitney being kidnapped and locked away forever. Yes. It doesn't. With this Whitney as a new character for the 2009 movie. But it's actually a pretty interesting structural choice that helps move it into that next scene. And then we start a more traditional three-act structure proper, where yes. uh, her brother is going out to find her. Uh, there's lots of sex that happens in this house. And then lots of murders happen as shit hits the fan. And it's interesting because the, the old slash warm opening group of people, Wade, Richie, Whitney, Whitney's boyfriend, and, and Richie's girlfriend, they... um. Yes, they're on the quest for weed, but they're also a pretty tame group in terms of the teens that we're often taught need to, quote, need to be killed, right? Yeah, like, yes, they're looking for weed, but they're in, the people who are having sex are in monogamous relationships. It seems like, you know, they're, none of them are ridiculously rude or mean, as opposed to, again, some of the, the people that we see, like Trent is kind of a, a jerk and and the, the sex that's happening there and the drugs that are happening there. So like, it's interesting that the our warmish opening is a fairly tame group of teenagers compared to the group we're going to go to next, uh, who we're rooting for because they're our main act folks, but they're the ones doing more drugs, alcohol, sex, nudity, all that good stuff. It is interesting. Perhaps it's and I guess it's interesting on the, on the, how the, fran how the franchise eventually did evolve into yeah. uh, kind of that, because, I, I mean, if you think about, I mean, I'm, as I'm thinking back to the first two Friday the 13th movies, they really weren't as, like, sexy and, like, no. as, as they get later down the line. Like, it eventually becomes a parody of itself with, uh, with it all, with it. But it, that wasn't actually, that, really, that wasn't how it started. So I, on, I wonder if it's honestly, like, that little bit of an homage to those earlier things. And then it gets more sexu sexual. Yes. With the culture, with the times. And and this franchise, more than, than some of the others, like the very, very first killings, the ones that we, the ones that Mrs. Voorhees does. So so she's obviously placing the blame on the wrong um, counselors, but like the initial counselors that, that were having sex while Jason drowned. Of all the teens in all the franchises that get murdered, they're the ones that might deserve it the most, right? Like yeah, Lori sure. and her friends don't really deserve it. Heather and her friends don't really deserve it. But like, I don't know. 
allowing a kid to drown while you're getting high and having sex on the clock. Eh, that's like a little bit more whatever. So I just find it interesting where this franchise sort of draws the line of like who is okay, right? Like who is okay to kill because it does it with a little bit more nuance than I think uh, we often give it credit. Maybe sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. I feel like it goes back and forth. That's what I, I think I said that in my opening remark is I, I this movie goes back and forth. I, for, for me and my mind is like there are sequences in this movie that are that are quite engaging like the water sequence mm-hmm. uh with this oh, in yeah. the movie the, the the scene in the basement honestly and honestly most of the third act is very yes. very well done uh just like that being chased around the property and their use of the scenery and location it, it's just all the like the little filler stuff in between for me that kind of slowed this movie down um, and, you know, I, I think maybe that's just my own personal distaste for some of the more played out elements within the franchise at this point, having seen them all, but I could honestly, totally, I was talking to somebody when I, I told them I was going to watch this movie and they had only seen this movie. So they are oh, that that's person interesting. you had Ooh, mentioned good, good, earlier. Good, good, good. And they said they like this movie. They were like, oh yeah, I like the Friday the 13th movie. It's like, it's kind of fun. They're like, it's, they're, they, they did warn me. They're like, there's a lot of boobs in it. oh my gosh which is true that's an accurate that is very accurate yes yes (laughs) so i told you that uh this before we started recording but first time i saw this movie was right after we moved to kentucky and it was when pretty sure blockbuster was still around because i'm pretty sure we rented it and so it must have been in 2009 like it must have just come out on on dvd and we rented it because we didn't have internet set up or anything like that yet and i watched it with my spouse and then my brother and my dad. And it is a really uncomfortable film to watch with your dad and brother, like in every way possible. And re and every time I rewatch it, I'm I like have this whatever is the opposite of nostalgia, like trauma informed <laughs> nostalgia, where I'm like reminded viscerally of how awkward it was to like sit there and like when I get uncomfortable watching a film with someone that I'm like, this is not the film I would have chosen, I get really still. And I just remember like being like, please don't, don't look over. I don't want to see any face that my dad and brother are making. I've made a mistake. I'm so glad. Sorry, I chose this film. And that's like, <laughs> that's like part of my thing. Cause there's a lot of boobs, just an awful lot. Yeah, and really, a lot of like conversations about boobs. It's just yeah, they're, real I mean, awkward. There really is like an Ended sequence in which they just talk, have a whole conversation about how yeah. fantastic. One stupendous, of I think. Stupendous. Is, is, there, yes, there's all yes. sorts of. They really, they, I, they clearly opened a thesaurus for, to crack this yes. scene. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. Well, and I, they cut back to it multiple times. Oh my gosh. So. Oh my gosh. I, I think those are what I'm talking about. Is where you like where it starts to fe- you, you start to feel the the tropey of it and you're like oh my god yes. okay I, we get it we get it these horn dogs are gonna die and they got they have to okay fine they're gonna be punished yep she's been murdered and she gets hoisted upon whatever that the thing in the oh bathroom, the like thing in the bathroom towel is. rack mm-hmm. the towel rack that's right i yeah. was like i should remember it was really gnarly so um, and even even when sex is not happening there's just a lot of boobs that's right true. like the wakeboarding scene She's topless the entire time, which does not feel like it would be very comfortable, but it just means that like you never could never escape it. Like I didn't do the math, <laughs> but I, I would be curious to know how many minutes of screen time we see or are being hearing about boobs 
or yeah. having sex because it's just it's way more than anyone should watch with their dad or brother my friend is i think like, the lesson my friend was like it's uh it honestly feels a little bit like corny at times you're like i know that's yeah. like they were like i know that's like i'm aware that's like the thing of the franchise but they're like it is it does feel they were like it felt a little porny they're like i guess i enjoyed it but it's it's a, it's it was a fun horror movie but it's a lot it was a lot in that regard so i i thought that was funny that they because they did not really have any commentary on the redundancy or yeah. the or the derivativeness of it in relation to the franchise or the, any of the like stuff around the Jason formation. It was all about the sex for them, which I mean, that's how you know what's baby. interesting. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And and I think what I love about that that idea that because it is it is a very porny film in a lot of ways is that that is a huge part of it. But at the heart of the narrative is the like pure search of a brother for his sister right weirdly yeah. like <laughs> that's true. yeah and and you know obviously the final girl is always going to be someone that that we can perceive as being virginal even if she's not a virgin but like jared padalecki's chemistry on screen with danielle hannah baker who plays jenna like even though she decides to go off in the woods with him which is a really bold move like they never feel romantic right it just kind of feels like he's helping her out or she's helping him out and then of course obviously he finds his sister so like so much of the core group is not romanticized uh it's like as pure as it could be in a way that's even purer than like the you know i love you but we're not gonna have sex until marriage version of things so it's like a weird juxtaposition i guess of this story about family in between all the boob shots <laughs> It absolutely feels puritanical in that in that yeah. regard. Affirmative horror through and through. No, no questions there. Case solved in that regard. Because yeah, for sure. But no, I hadn't. That is, it is interesting to think about this family story couched within a porn film. Yeah, <laughs> and how honestly, like these filmmakers are in many ways like the people. Those, if you really think about it, those people like those. They're like religious family people they're probably not going to horror films so they're like directly being like I, you people who watch these movies you deserve to die <laughs> yeah it is it is really weird right because because the people who are watching it are like you said probably the teenagers in the woods not that i'd never really thought about that and how yeah. it's like a reminder that that we're sinners and we'll pay a price <laughs> but it, it very much is doing that and i think what I also find interesting about the end of the film, and, and obviously we always have spoilers, but spoilers are coming, is I think in the early 2000s, and I've never categorized this, so I, I don't have all of my like evidence that I probably should, but you can see that the, the genre is trying to figure out how to handle who survives. Because, you know, obviously for, through the much of the early 80s, uh, it was just, if it was slasher films, it was just the final girl. But then in the, the early, late 1990s, early 2000s, we start to get slightly different configurations of survivors. So there's a little period of time where it's just the woman. Then there's a period of time where it's the woman and the man. And I'm talking about very specifically affirmative horror because it's like, oh, good. They both get to survive and, and bond. And then there was this period where it was actually three people that would typically survive. It'd be the man, the woman, and then often the black character, right? Or whoever was the character that we thought had died early on. So Deep Blue Sea, it's um, LL Cool J's character that's like, I'm back in, I still know what you did last summer. It's her roommate, right? We have this like move where there's 
and I think one of the, I think Scream 2 does this too, right? Where we have like almost exclusively, it is it is the black, sole black character that also survives. Because I think the genre was like, this isn't a good look for us. and fair. Which is fair. And then we have this film, which is going to ask us like, who's going to survive, right? Out of Clay, Whitney, and Jenna. Like, are all three of them going to make it? Because Jenna has been cast as our final girl of the main narrative, but Whitney was our final girl of the warm opening. So I thought, I'm always surprised at the ending every time I watch this film about who actually survives. I'm always surprised that Jenna, you know, bites it right at the the end. And I guess then we still have it because it is, it is in this insufferable period in the early 2000s in which everything has to be sequel baited. It, yes. We get this terrible, dumb ending in which they're sitting, Clay and Whitney have dumped the Jason's body into the lake. Which feels like a lot of work, right? does feel like, like a lot of work. I wouldn't do that, but okay. I, I would either. <laughs> I'd be like, I would have, I would have called somebody, just yep. burn that body right there. I'm like, you give it, I mean, I guess, I guess maybe that's why he woke up. He's just been like knocked around so much. He's like, well, listen, I wanted to stay dead, but if yeah. you're going to drag me all the way out here, fine, I'll come back to life and murder you. But yeah, it's like the <laughs> lake water is, uh, it's like he rehydrates. Like he's like, he's like a sea monkeys, right? Where like <laughs> he's in dormant form until you put him back in the lake and then he can like rehydrate and become a killer again. That's my theory. That, I'm going to write a whole so. book called Jason, comma, the sea monkey of Crystal Lake. So <laughs> brace yourself for that. But yeah, so they they drop they drop his body, and then like you said, there's this sequel baiting moment where he like bursts out, and I can never remember. Does he kill? He grabs Whit Whitney. Okay, he grabs Whitney, and then the movie ends. Yeah, which to be fair, the films have been doing. I mean, the 1980 film. Sure. You if know, the, if, I guess if we're going to be generous, but but it's also very frustrating because it's like really we didn't need we didn't need to have that. <laughs> yeah. Particularly because the sequel never came for this one. Despite yeah. it, I made, on a budget of $19 million, it made $92.7 million, uh, which is mm. not bad, as I mentioned. No. Not, not, uh, not great, but, uh, you know, it's pretty decent. You make a profit, you turn around, it's the second uh, best performing financially of the franchise, like we mentioned earlier. And although a sequel was announced, it was originally, it was even dated. Uh, they had originally oh. dated it for August 13th, 2010. Oh. However, <laughs> the film was delayed indefinitely. And it, it eventually was announced that that was not going to happen. So no sequel. And to this day, we have had no sequel. And no And it's interesting that all of those 2000 remake, sequel, requels, whatever they were, really none of them have had... They all kind of like ended their franchise. So we did get in 2022, Netflix did make a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, but but I don't think Friday that the 13th kind of no <laughs> no I don't think it did either. Um, but Friday the 13th and Nightmare both kind of like that. It was almost like it was like, well, what else is there to do? And and with Friday the 13th, I mean with Nightmare on Elm Street, with them being so anti the entire franchise. I guess it makes sense that that would kind of end, stall things. But I'm just very surprised. Like, it's been a long time since we've had a Friday the 13th film. Do you think these stories are still relevant to 2024 yes. audiences? Yes, because the Friday the 13th game has done so well. So the Friday the 13th game came out in 2017, uh, developed by Ilphonic and published by Gun Media. And I know about it mainly because Gun Media 
where several of the developers were out of Lexington, and they've actually now done a Texas Chainsaw game. And what's kind of fun about it is, is that it is, um, you play primarily online. Uh, it has been delisted because the license expiring, but but the game will continue to function, or I guess, yeah, through December of this coming year, which is the downside to having games that involve platforms, right? Games that only allow you to play in, in an online realm are hard to maintain. But up to eight people could play in one game session. One player would be randomly selected to control Jason, and then everyone else would be the counselors, and you had to, and then it depended on who won, right? Jason could win, or the counselors, and, and so there were some really kind of interesting things that, that were happening. And the game has varying degrees of, of reviews, like everything in Friday the 13th. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it does manage to, to have mixed reviews, but uh, Manfredini created the soundtrack for the video game, which is like a huge big deal. Uh, to be able to get the the original the original um, composer, yeah, yeah, the original composer, uh, but it has mixed or average somewhere between a, a six point five out of ten or so, um, with one person saying, uh, "This is James Constantitis of Game Revolution said, is it perfect? Not by a long shot. Indeed, you'll experience graphical bugs and other quirks that break your immersion. But after getting into Friday the Thirteenth, the game, and I mean really getting into it, discovering all of its intricacies and more technical aspects." These problems will seem so small as to evaporate, and balance issues you once perceived will be corrected. And what's left is a truly unique experience, unlike any other multiplayer game you've played, and certainly a cut above other asymmetrical titles, where cooperation wits and sometimes ruthless murder are what it takes to survive. Um, and so as of like August 2017, the game has sold over um, almost 2 million copies, about 1.8, and they were able to uh, have several other sort of elements created as a result of of it so it has been canceled uh, all future dlc has been canceled and things like that but obviously they did well enough that they felt comfortable moving to texas chainsaw and you know again to get manfredini involved and i think that cunningham obviously had to be brought into the conversation at some point because he has the license so um one of the people said Sean immediately noticed the passion we had for Friday the 13th. And after several incredible meetings, we decided to upgrade our plans. Um, and then it said that Sean surprised us by offering the Friday the 13th video game license. And that is the thing I, I will say is, is really nice about this franchise. The one thing I can say is true. And that is, is that the people making the films in the franchise, making the games, making the adaptations, they really do seem to love this franchise. Now, they always seem to think that their text is the best one in the franchise and potentially award-winning which still makes me laugh every time favorite but they, moment like, of the favorite moment of the franchise <laughs> <laughs> but they but they also are like we love this we want to keep playing in this world and that's something that you can't say for most franchises that have been in as many hands right obviously craven as long as it was under craven it had that same vibe but the moment it left craven's hands right they were like Ugh, who who else hated this franchise right but that's never been the case with the, the Friday the 13th. It's always just been fans making another film for themselves and also other people who might be watching, which is kind of neat. Yeah. This was my first working through all of them. I had only seen yep, me the too. first movie before this. And then no. obviously the one we had watched, Freddy vs. Jason, yes. for the podcast uh, already. But this was my first time working through it. So I, I'm new new to the franchise. So I would really be curious in hearing what what can fans, modern day fans, are interested in seeing from this franchise. Because I was like, I'm, I know there are people who still love this out there. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so I, I think it is just surprising to me that not, there hasn't been more attempts at this to kind of bring it back. I mean, I guess good on them for doing some, letting it be after this 2009 for a while. But I don't know. I would maybe be interested in seeing them take another crack at it. If the show ever gets made, <laughs> I I would be interested to know what it's like because all that pops up on IMDb is stuff that just like tells you nothing, right? It says prequel series, which follows a doomed small town where camp counselors come to die. There's a reference in here that um, the creator, who is Brian Fuller, wants to show various iterations of Jason, uh, which will be familiar to fans of the slasher franchise. Under details, it says, and I don't know if this is true because it's supposed to stream on Peacock, I think, but it says the production company is A24, which I didn't know they did shows. Mm -hmm. But like, so it's like a weird, it is a weird mix of things that are happening, uh, including putting, you know, Brian Fuller to it. Like, it's just like, there's just a lot, a lot of things happening that I have questions about because, of course, Brian Fuller did Pushing Davy Daisies and, and several of the Star Treks, but like, he he's an interesting choice to put on there. So I will be interested to see if it ever happens, but. And, th and this movie. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So like he's, he's a wide range of, of things happening, but I'm glad we, I'm glad we did this. This was a roller coaster. I think I still walk away with the same. I am being very unsure why it's called Friday the 13th as like the, the franchise, given that the actual Friday, the 13th plays little to no significance yes. in like the backstory or really anything or most of the movies um so you know maybe that's my maybe that's what i would focus on in a reboot i'd be like we can keep all the same elements we're just going to really lean into the friday the 13th aspect yes. of it i love that so much it is definitely what is needed We would love to hear from you and hear all of your thoughts about Friday the 13th franchise, particularly because I there have been times when, Tony, you and I have been talking and I'm like, ooh, we are saying things that would make me so angry if I was a diehard fan of the franchise. So we would love to hear your thoughts because clearly mm -hmm. our favorite films seem to be most fans' least favorite films. Um, and also just to kind of know, like, what is it that, that drew you to the franchise? What is it that you enjoy? or what is it that you don't enjoy? Uh, you can reach out to us through our emails, honestly, the best way to get a hold of us, but all of our details are on um, in each description of each episode. And we'll have to think what our next like rotating thing is, because it's been a very long time since yeah, we since we yeah. had to find a franchise to kind yeah. of yeah. To work with. I I mean, I guess there's there's a there's a myriad of them for us to to work with. Oh, we could go. Yeah. We, we could will go never really silly leprechaun sharknado oh, we could go yes. uh, or we could go and obviously i mean you've been trying to get me to watch halloween for years and and <laughs> honestly to make myself watch a couple of the ones that i just can't seem to make myself want to watch that's honestly the real reason i want you to watch it is just because there's a couple in there that i just can't make myself see season of the witch and and i just need to see it eventually so i can say i've seen it so, so it's 100 percent me taking advantage of you in the podcast but we will eventually decide what our next franchise is although now you've gotten me really excited about leprechaun and or sharknado but <laughs> we're gonna bounce back to our sort of things that we're doing in the meantime and we're kind of continuing our adventures into carnivalesque situations which we have done with 
a couple of different things from Mayfly to Five Nights at Freddy. And our next film is going to be... We'll be talking about 2021's Willie's Wonderland, starring Nicolas Cage. A horror comedy about some friendly animatronics who turn murderous. If it sounds similar to Five Nights at Freddy's, it is. But I, <laughs> we're, but we're, I'm excited to talk about it because it sounds like a sillier take on the, on on the genre than the game or the or the film that we ended up getting. Yes, uh, from 2020. And to be honest, I will watch almost anything that that Nicolas Cage is in. So. Yeah, me too. And you can check this movie out. It's available for free on Tubi, <laughs> the Roku channel, uh, and Crackle. So as well as another uh, number, I believe also Amazon and on Hulu. So, oh. I, or you can also pay Google four dollars for it if you if you want, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, which is you know Google's a struggling company, so I'm sure small business. They, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Jackson for always editing everything that we do um, and making us sound like we don't occasionally pause the episode to look stuff up. So thank you, Jackson. Yeah, thank you so much, Jackson. You are much appreciated. And to those of you listening, thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. Bye.